This podcast is brought to you by Likeable Media. Likeable Media produces and distributes content across the social web for mid to large size brands. Visit them at likeable.com. Welcome to All the Social Ladies with CEO of Likeable Media, Carrie Kerpin. Now, Carrie Kerpin. Oh boy, are you going to love my next guest, Sophia Sheff works at Mam Repeller, and she's had a long history of working at Condé Nast and YouTube and Google, and you're going to hear the best advice under the sun for how to grow into the career you love. Trust me, you'll want to listen. Welcome, Sophia, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be chatting with you. I am so excited to have you here. And I know you've had a real incredible breadth of experience in social media. And so I would love for you to tell our listeners the story of your career. Absolutely. So, you know, I always say that I fell into digital very serendipitously. I actually went to college uh, for undergrad studying media, journalism, psychology. Um, It was a very interdisciplinary sort of program. Um, And I was interning at NBC and my, my goal was really to end up in broadcast television, but during the course of my experience there, I felt sort of really, um, how shall I say this, not inspired by what I was seeing around me um, and sort of pivoted over to law. So I have these three years under my belt at a law firm trying to convince myself that I wanted to go to law school when I really didn't. Um, And it was sort of um, good fortune that I saw a role at Google on the legal team, uh, sent my resume over there, and they had the foresight to look at my background and say, why are you applying to work on our legal team, why don't you come join us on this brand new team um, we're building out uh, on YouTube. So they had just acquired Next New Networks, which was doing incredible work building um, audiences and communities for these endemic native YouTube stars. So I joined that team back in 2011, and this is when YouTube still had a reputation for being a place to watch videos of cats on skateboards, actively working to uh, change that perception. Um, So I uh, loved it, loved the experience, moved out to YouTube headquarters um, in San Bruno, spent about three years there, um, and then sort of moved over uh, to Condé Nast Entertainment, where we were focused on building video content for the print properties, growing those audiences. And then that's really where I started to specialize in social. We launched um, a brand called The Scene, and that was intended to be a premium digital video destination. So when we launched The Scene, with it, we had to launch all of these social platforms um, and grow audiences there, create an email marketing strategy. So really, really was a unique um, position to be in as a digital marketer um, to, to 
create brand equity um, and social channels and grow those audience from zero to something big. Um, so very, very cool. And uh, most recently have been over at Man Repeller doing similar work. Um, the difference there is Man Repeller has this tremendous brand equity, a highly engaged and loyal audience. Um, so it's been very interesting to do it from both sides of, um, of the spectrum. Yeah. So one is like creating from scratch and one is having an organic, you know, massive brand fan love that you have people going there immediately. Absolutely. And I would say even going back to my experience at YouTube, just working with uh, YouTube creators to leverage social channels appropriately. So they've got these huge YouTube audiences and then that translates over to Twitter, to Instagram, to Facebook. So really working with them to figure out how do we develop a strategy that's going to effectively drive video views, uh, channel subscribers, whatever goal, um, you know, everyone comes to social with different goals. So it's really um, been very interesting to see it from, from very, very different perspectives. What I think is so fascinating is that your entire career trajectory changed because of an insight from, I guess, Google's HR team or from, from their world. How did that come to be? How did it, how did it happen in that way? Was it that they recognized it? Was it that you both recognized it? And was there anything that you learned from that experience that can translate to young professional women today? Absolutely. So this is one of my favorite go-to stories whenever I meet somebody for a coffee or do sort of a mentor lunch um, type of thing. Whenever I'm speaking to a young person who uh, wants advice about how to break into this industry. Um, and I think there's this tremendous pressure for people to have their plans mapped out. So I need job A to get to point B and ultimately end up at point C. And I love telling the story because I think for me, the takeaway is as long as you lean into your strengths. So I knew my strengths were I can communicate well. Um, you know, I enjoy reading. I enjoy writing. Um, and so by leaning into those skill sets, um, I was sort of able to play the long game, so to speak, and find a place in media that made sense for me. Um, even though if you would have asked me when I was working at the law firm what my plan was, I really didn't know it. So, um, you know, a piece of advice that my dad gave to me, and I always, always, always take it to heart, has been, it's difficult, difficult to do so at times, but um, it's really do what you love, pursue your passions, and the money will follow. So, you know, just by sort of having that interest in the digital media space, by um, maintaining my own personal savvy about it, I think it was able to translate very well, um, you know, when we sort of pivoted. And, and I'm very thankful to that Google HR recruiter. They do a, a phenomenal job, I think, of marrying talent to their roles. Um, and I think, frankly, a lot of um, HR organizations can learn a lot from them. And, and their model is, I know, sort of widely replicated or emulated. Um, so I'm very thankful for that. And so when you went over to Conde and you were looking at kind of building out these social communities, because that's when you were transitioning, were they strongly behind this and, you know, you just kind of had to execute it or was it like you had to push them and say, this is where we need to go and this is how we need to approach it? Absolutely. So the scene was the brainchild of uh, our chief digital officer, Fred Santarpia, and he had this incredible foresight to say, you know, we're producing all of this great digital video content for these like iconic brands. Um, but what we lack right now is a space to really aggregate all of 
this content. And we have partnerships with BuzzFeed Video, with Major League Soccer, with these, you know, just tremendous, tremendous content, but, you know, no real solid brand identity around what is Condé Nast Entertainment? Who are we? What do we do? So, um, you know, that's really the birth of the scene. In terms of the social, it was really about identifying the platforms that made sense for for us to launch across. And um, there's this sort of presentation that I like to go to um, frequently um, that I gave a couple months back and I call it smart social strategy. There's a big difference between a lot of what I see happening right now, which is brands doing social for the sake of doing social, as opposed to doing social because there's a strategic endpoint or there's a, a unique value prop. So, um, you know, for me, it was as simple as saying, okay, uh, we're a super scrappy and lean team team right now. So let's prioritize um, the big ones, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, and let's sort of put the other ones on the, you know, on the back of mind for now. So uh, we'll, we'll get to those once we've nailed these, as opposed to kind of create casting a very wide net um, and not developing thoughtful audiences and thoughtful strategies first. Absolutely. I think so often uh, brands focus on the how, like what networks we should be on versus stepping back and looking at the actual why. The why. Absolutely. The why. And I think the why is so key. And for Condé, to me, I think you really articulated very well from the chief digital officer, kind of the why they needed to do that with the scene. And I think ultimately um, every brand has to determine their why. I think that's a Absolutely. great point. Absolutely. It's visible to the audience. For example, you know, when I look at brands that are essentially just using social as a syndication platform. So yes. pushing out the same content with the same language on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Snapchat, fine. Um, you know, that's a very poor user experience versus, um, you know, one where there's a very targeted um, strategy in place. And one of the things that I really enjoyed doing was um, same presentation, smart social strategy. Um, I pulled a bunch of tweets from various fashion publications or publishers. Um, and I removed all of the logos, brandings, the avatar. So it was really just the Twitter copy. The audience was able to identify the three tweets that came from Man Repeller um, versus the other ones, which were other fashion pubs. Um, and I think that that speaks again to being very clear about what your voice is and how that voice translates on each social channel. And don't you think, Sophia, that many fashion brands um, have a, a reluctance to participate because it's like almost too provincial for them? Like they're above the yeah. level of engagement. Like that's what I see a lot, which is why so many of them got, I think, onto Tumblr and these things because there's really the commenting functionality is not quite the same. It's like beneath them. If you, you know, right. that's what I always see. That's funny. I was just reading an article this morning about um, how the volume of New York Fashion Week Twitter impressions went down exponentially from September to February and how a number of fashion houses actually won't allow any UGC. So um, consumer or attendees can't take photos. They can't share to social. Um, and it's it's very interesting to me because I, I absolutely understand the artistry. Um, it, it's a very unique 
struggle and challenge. But there are brands, I think, in the fashion and beauty space that have sort of uh, mastered how to walk that line of being aspirational and premium, but then also acknowledging that, hey, our younger consumer is spending a lot of time on these digital channels and the ivory tower sort of strategy or mentality is outdated. So do you think that the ivory tower strategy is sort of outdated? Do you think they're going to have to come around eventually, or do you think they're going to continue the exclusivity and not care? You know, it's a, it's a great question. I'd say they absolutely do have to come around at this point. Um, you know, even when you look at events like fashion week that historically have been so, um, exclusive and limited to in terms of who's able to be a part of these things and more and more it's moving over to live stream broadcasts to influencers sitting in the front rows and actually being you know um, invited to to um, share them on social and make it an experience that scales. So I think um, the entire industry is moving in that direction and the ones the brands that are slow to um, to keep up are the ones that are going to miss out on important audience building opportunities. And I think that's something, again, Man Repeller has done a great job of is being sort of first to market on a lot of these platforms or first to adopt new technologies, new modes of communications. So talk to me a little bit about that. When you're a brand like Man Repeller and you have this sort of um, really devoted fan base and really devoted community, how much content do you need to put out versus content that can come in and be curated and reshared? Yeah, that's a great question. I find what's interesting about a community like Man Repeller is that the most engaged fans and members of the community actually embody the brand voice, the persona. And I would say, you know, Man Repeller to me is not a person. It's not Leandra Medine. It's not, you know, the, the editorial staff here. It's not, um, you know, any one individual. It's it's a community and it's a way of approaching the world. It's a way of, um, you know, dressing. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of speaking. So I find that it's it's fairly easy for us to engage with that community, to, to retweet, to curate, um, because they're sort of out there living and breathing that voice. Um, but I, I, I don't think that's the case with a lot of other fashion communities. Um, and, and there's a very unique, it, it works for this brand, but that's not to say that it works um, for every, everyone. You know, Sophia, I was just thinking because the story about how you kind of found your path really resonated with me. And I, I loved how you said, kind of follow what you love and the rest will follow. Uh, you know, you had some element of luck, right? You had this great recruiter that recognized this, but it was really about much more than luck. And so I want for the young listeners uh, today, I would love for you to give them some action steps on what they could do to shape their career the way you have shaped this fabulous, incredible story. Well, thank you so much. And absolutely. So I would say, you know, for me, it's always been about doing the what I call the due diligence. So, um, you know, one of the things that motivated me, for example, to apply it to Google to begin with um, was the fact that I knew that I had a passion for fashion. That was something that was very personal to me. Um, and it just felt at that time, especially impossible to break into. Um, digital wasn't at the place where it is today. Um, and so what I did was say, okay, well, I work at this law firm. I don't necessarily love it. Well, how can I marry my interest in fashion um, with this career in law that I'm starting to build? And one thing that I found out about was um, fashion law, which is uh, specializing in intellectual property. 
essentially. So in doing my research about the fashion law space, I reached out to one of the partners of the biggest fashion law firm in New York City. And I just cold emailed her, uh, reached out. I said, you know, I work at this law firm. I've been here for three years. I'd really love to pick your brain about, you know, how you became such a successful professional in this space. She really is an an expert um, in the fashion law industry. And uh, she followed up and sent me a note and said, sure, let's do coffee. And, you know, her piece of advice was learn intellectual property law um, because, you know, fashion law is a very niche space. There's a lot of young women like you or young men and women um, who are interested in fashion and think that this is how they can kind of be in that space, but also, um, you know, have have a more corporate career. Um, And so in pursuing that advice, thinking about where I could learn intellectual property led me to Google. So, um, you know, I always say, don't be afraid to send that email to reach out to somebody. I know that whenever I get a thoughtful note from LinkedIn or my corporate email account, um, as long as it's thoughtful. I think for me, I don't know if you see this in terms of now that you're much further along in your career, aren't you happy to meet with young people who are invested in learning about what you do? As long as you can make the time and helping them get to where they're going, it's just, it's women paying it forward to other women. And I think that that's, that's so important. Absolutely. Um, and you know, you're making me think of uh, a summer intern that I brought on and, uh, she was so phenomenal in her work ethic and her follow-up and all, all of those little things that I think are somewhat of a lost art. Um, and she's just, she stuck out to me as such a polished professional. I would love, you know, I, I told her, it's like, I wish you were a graduate cause I'd love to offer you a full-time role, but I'll reach out to her every now and then and say, Hey, you know, this is what I'm thinking about doing on Pinterest. What are your thoughts? What, what would you do differently? Yep. And I yep. really value um, her expertise and she's, you know, just as much as I've been an active mentor in her career, she's, uh, you know, definitely an asset for me to bounce ideas back and forth off of. And Sophia, I know that you have, you know, really grown throughout your career and I would love for people to be able to follow you. Where can they watch you learn and grow and do all these things? Where's the best place to connect with you socially? Yep. That's too kind of you. Um, I am Sophia Jasmine on Twitter. So that's S-O-F-I-A. And there are a lot of Sophias out there with the P-H. I am with an F. Jasmine, J-A-S-M-I-N-E. And uh, Sophia Jasmine also on Medium. So I'd like to publish both industry articles, uh, content related to women um, and being a professional woman. I'm actually starting a series this month just profiling various um, successful women in, in different industries. So very excited to, to start pushing those out and sharing them. Incredible. That's great. Sophia, thank you. You're one fabulous social lady. Oh, thank you. Likewise, Carrie, this was a lot of fun. You've been listening to All the Social Ladies with Carrie Kerfin, CEO of Likeable Media. You can follow Carrie on Twitter, at Carrie Kerfin. To get current social media insights and great tips, Sign up for Carrie's weekly newsletter by emailing newsletter at likable.com. This podcast is brought to you by Likable Media. Likable Media produces and distributes content across the social web for mid to large size brands. Visit them at likable.com.